0: I have given up in my life trying to figure out who is going to turn to Jesus. I have given up in my life trying to figure out who ultimately is going to reject Jesus because I guess wrong all the time. I will will be like, this person right here, she is going to be the next Billy Graham. I'm telling you, she's it on it. And then like five years later, she flakes out. And I'm like, I was, I was convinced, I was convinced that was the next Billy Graham. And then there are the people that I'm like, that person, that person is never gonna turn, they are never gonna accept Jesus, they are gonna go through three more train wreck relationships, and even counseling's not gonna help them because they're not dealing with the core issues, and they're gonna die alone, probably of a disease they contracted because of all of their bad choices. And then I will run into them in public and they will say, Max, guess what? And I'll be like, what? I found Jesus! And I'll be like, really? <laughs> really? I, it's just the weirdest thing. I got a phone call a few years ago, a guy in my life for 10 years, 10 years. Um, he, every time I got together with him, we had to talk about his dad, his hypocritical, Pharisaical pastor father who was nice and loving to everyone but the people in the family and ooh, he, and the angerness, and the bitterness, and like, you know, so I, I kind of had him in this category. Well, that's just not gonna happen, and we're gonna have to hope for the best, right? And one night, he wakes me up, and it's 11.45 at night, and I'm like, huh, what? Max! I'm like, are you okay, Max? It's this wonderful! And I'm like, are you drunk, no I'm not drunk I'm just the happiest I've ever been <laughs> like what is going on he goes I found Jesus <laughs> and you had to tell me at 11 45 like I did not have Christian joy in that moment <laughs> so I've given up trying to figure out like I just can't And you would think that I would know this because of my own experience in my own family. So I grew up in a a family where dad took us to church and mom stayed home. And mom stayed home because mom didn't want to have anything to do with organized religion. Catholicism, family issues had kind of cemented that for her. And so occasionally my dad would be like, Sherry, you want to come? No, no. I'm staying put. And that was kind of a good metaphor. And, I, and so I remember my dad would be like, you know, you should pray for your mom, you should pray for your mom. I'm like, dad, that is never gonna happen. And then there was that random phone call. Jenny and I had been married, I don't know how many years, and dad's talking about the weather and all this kind of stuff, and then nonchalantly mentions, oh yeah, by the way, on Sunday, mom got baptized. What? <laughs> mom, yeah. <laughs> like, so again, you would think that I, I, I would own this, but so I just can't figure out who's gonna turn to Jesus and who isn't. And so I've given up trying to. And and I say all that because I need you to understand the shock value of Acts chapter 9. I need you to understand that because if there was anybody that wasn't going to become a follower of Jesus, it's Saul of Tarsus. N.T. Wright says this about Saul. Saul was a hard-line, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. You know, the kind that Jesus loved to hang out with at parties, the kind of people that Jesus would say, disciples, gather around. See those Pharisees over there? Be like them. You know, (laughs) no, no. Like, Saul was everything Jesus wasn't, okay? And so, in Acts chapter eight, we're told this, Saul was one of the witnesses to the stoning of Stephen and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. In other words, Luke tells us that Saul held people's coats while they stoned the most popular man in the early church other than, like Barnabas kind of walked into that role after they, killed Stephen, but Stephen was the original. I just love him. He's awesome. And they stoned him to death. And as he's dying, you know, he has this vision of Jesus and Saul was there. And and what, what Luke is telling us is that Saul in his innermost being was like, yeah, scored one for team God. And so He, uh, that's where we pick things up. That's Acts 9, okay? And so I wanna go through this. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation and the arrest of any followers of the way found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains, so this is taking place within two to three years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So the whole Jesus thing is still fresh on everybody's minds. Everybody's, you know, Jesus, 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 that Jesus of Nazareth, you know, Jesus, Jesus. And so there's a, there's a group of people, and at this point they're calling themselves or they're called the followers of the way, the way of life, the way of Jesus, okay? And so... Saul makes this journey from Jerusalem to Damascus and he wants these people under lock and key so that they can be taken care of just like Stephen. Okay, so remember that hard-line, fanatical, ultra-nationalistic, super-orthodox, pharisaic Jew thing? Yeah, it's a thing. N.T. Wright and some other scholars say that uh, they wonder if Saul was contemplating Ezekiel chapter one on his way to Damascus. It's a 135-mile, 150-mile journey. You've got it's warm, the sun is shining. You've got pleasant countryside. You've got the of the horse, and it kind of lends itself to let your mind wander. And in the first century, it was common for Jews to engage in this thing, I want to get it right, the throne chariot meditation, where they're, they're thinking through and visualizing all the parts of Ezekiel chapter one. Ezekiel chapter one, if you're not familiar with it, is this passage where uh, Ezekiel has this vision and he sees, in a sense, the face of God, okay, okay? And and it's got all kinds of strange things, creatures, wings, eyes, wheels, chariot, and then and then this figure. And that's Ezekiel chapter uh, one, verse 26. Above the surface was something that looked like a throne made of a blue lapis lazuli. And, and on the throne high above was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. And from and from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame shining with splendor. And all around him was a, was a glowing halo like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. And when I, when I saw it, I fell face down on the ground and I heard someone's voice speaking to me. I, I don't know. We, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It's just a guess that some scholars make. But I wonder if that's what Paul was engaging in as he's plodding along on the horse when and he's zooming in on that figure and it's becoming a little bit more clear and then something happens. And that's verse three and following. As he was approaching Damascus on his mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, oh, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go to the city and you'll be told what you must do. Can you? So again, this is just a guess, but if he was on that horse and he was contemplating the throne and he's wanting to see the face of God, can you imagine the shock in that moment? Something happens and you think, oh, I'm gonna get the vision, I'm gonna get to see God himself. Oh my goodness, I'm one of the few that's actually gonna get this experience. And then it's Jesus. Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who with the magic tricks and all the teaching led all these people astray, away from the one true God. Jesus, the one the Romans rightly crucified and died. That Jesus whom we know clearly was not the Messiah, Jesus. Shocker, shocker, shocker. I mean, c- can you imagine, okay? And, and he says, I am Jesus and you're persecuting me. We in America need to pick up on this. Persecuting the followers of the way is the same thing as persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus so closely identifies with his church that he talks about it as being the head and the church being his body. Jesus so identifies with the church that in Matthew when Jesus is saying, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me. So Jesus so strongly identifies with the church that when whatever's happening to the church is happening to Jesus himself, okay? You're persecuting me. And that's verses seven and nine. So the men with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. This is a public event of some kind. So all of Paul's, Saul's companions, something happened. What just happened? Did you... Did you see that? Did you, what just happened? So they, there was something that happened. Saul got all of the parts. He saw, he heard, Jesus spoke to him, but not everybody around him got all the parts. They just know, what, something just went down. What, what happened? What happened? I, did I, okay? And so Saul is struck blind, and there he's taken to Damascus where he sits in the dark, blind, fasting for three days. Max Lucado says that he believes that what happened in that moment, in those three three days, is that Saul looked inward. And that that was the moment, those three days, blind, sitting in a dark room in Damascus, where Saul concluded, I'm the worst of sinners. I am the, abs- I am a horrible person. I am the absolute worst. And that in looking inward, realized how broken he was, right? And so, in that, again, Max Lucado says, in that moment, Saul the legalist was done for, and Paul the liberator is born. Okay, so let's keep, let's keep going, and that's verses ten and following. Now, now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He's praying to me right now. I've shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But, but Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem, and, and he's authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias is one of the followers of the way in Damascus. And unlike maybe some other people, he hasn't fled. They know, the believers in Damascus have gotten word, they're expecting Saul and these guards and these letters of arrest. And they know what happened to Stephen, and yet Ananias is still there. And the Lord appears to him in this vision and asks Ananias to do something that Ananias is like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) I mean, and so the Lord tells him, Saul is going to be the Lord's instrument in reaching Gentiles, kings, and the people of Israel, and doesn't... Paul, do just that. I mean, is there anyone other than Jesus who has a bigger fin- fingerprint on the church than Paul? No. So so verse 17, Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, "Brother, Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, has sent me that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight, and then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Ananias isn't one of the apostles. He's just one of the regular believers in Damascus, and what does he call Saul when he sees him? What's the word he uses? Brother we're family now, we're in the family of God together. I don't know if you've ever traveled internationally and been in a foreign country and met another believer, but there's this thing that happens, and you're like, oh, even though there's this language and culture barrier and all this other stuff, like, we're family. And it's the, one of the most wonderful things that can happen. Okay, and so, brother, Saul's now part of the family, and there's a bond that cannot be explained, and just like the Ethiopian Eunuch, Saul is immediately baptized. I think Max Lucado is right. Saul the legalist is done for and Paul the liberator is born and in a wonderfully ironic fashion, Saul who was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians ends up preaching the very first message about Christ, Jesus Christ is Lord, guess where? In Damascus. Hashtag irony. God loves irony. In fact, In fact, think about it. God's chosen instrument to reach non Jews is the most nationalistic, Pharisaic, ultra conservative, ultra Orthodox Jew he can find. And that's who's going to reach the Roman world with the gospel. Let me ask a couple of questions. When has God surprised you? When has God surprised you? When has God overturned your expectations in a surprising way? And in this account from Acts 9, with whom do you identify the most? Saul? His companions? What's going on, buff? Or Ananias? I don't know. Who do you identify with most and why? So I I try to make teaching at Generations practical. So here's how you take this home. First and foremost, if we see anything in this passage, it's that you cannot separate Jesus from his church. I know it's really popular right now, the whole I love Jesus but not his church thing. But when you say that, you're in essence saying, I don't love Jesus. Because if you don't love his church, you don't love Jesus. Because Jesus, remember, Jesus, it's one and the same. It's one and the same, okay? So if... I wrote this down. If you're too good for the church, at the end of the day, you're too good for Jesus. Um, The second thing is here's the good news your past does not disqualify you from God's grace. If there was anybody that is a scoundrel, it's Saul of Tarsus. And yet, he turns and he's transformed. Who would have thunk? Who would have thunk? Your past does not qualify you from God's grace. Um, and you're gonna encounter people in your life that turn to Jesus and there's gonna be this visceral reaction in you where you say, no, 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 not them, not him, not her, not now. They're a uh, blinkety blinkety and they've done, blah, 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 blah. Yes, even them, even they can find Jesus, okay? Even they can encounter Jesus. The last thing is remember the church is always a little bit like Ananias. And what I mean by that is the church is always a little unsure if God is really all that powerful. The church is always a little unsure if God is really all that gracious. But the church is willing to obey the leading of the spirit anyway. Even when there's doubts about what God is really up to. Okay, and that's the church. In 1986, I worked for my uh, Grandpa John. My grandpa John was this self-made man. He was a millionaire. Um, he had a business in Las Vegas, Nevada, and I worked in the shipping department. Grandpa John was scary. i 've told Grandpa John stories before. Some of his more favorite things to say, "If you don't work, you don't eat." Uh, he had all kinds of little you know pithy, you know John Bogata sayings. He was a big man, uh, big framed guy, booming voice. Um, when he, when he had his steaks made, this is how he made steak. Psh, 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 done. <laughs> okay? And the blood is running on the plate, and he's okay. So Grandpa John was a scary guy. And, and I, I, I every day, worked in the shipping department, would come, come home to the house, and one day, we're watching something on the TV, and out of the blue, he says you know, I've been, I'm going, been going to this church here in Las Vegas, it's about three blocks down the road, victory, blah, 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 um, two to three times a month. I'm sorry, what? Grandpa John, you, you, you're doing what again? Yeah, I've been going to the end. Right then and there, he wants to get into it about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, he, it didn't, we didn't, like, we couldn't come to terms at the end of the conversation And to be honest, I don't know how things eventually shook out with my Grandpa John. But I'll tell you, I was surprised. If ever there was somebody that was not gonna darken the doors of organized religion, it was John Begatis, and yet, boom, surprise, right? So if you've been at Generations for a while, it's possible that you've been on the fence about the Jesus thing, right? So one of the things I don't do is the thing that I did in the 80s where I would uberly simplify it to, well, just pray this prayer with me and, and it's all done. So say it with me, I confess I'm a sinner, right? So I, I want you to get the full-orbed Jesus gospel thing, right, and so it, and it has some parts to it. And the first part is the part that we got right in the 1980s. There's this head part. I make a decision to follow Jesus. In other words, I know who Jesus is. Jesus is the son of God. Come to save the world. Jesus lived the life I should live and died the death I deserve. And I'm gonna follow Jesus. Jesus is my ticket for things being right with God. So yes, it starts there, but it's not just that. You'll find that over time what happens is, and that's the heart part, all of a sudden like Saul of Tarsus, you find you're not the same person you used to be. Jesus is cleaning shop on the inside. He's, he's reordering your priorities. He's wanting to produce in you this love for God and love for people that exemplifies its ways in the fruit of the spirit, right? Peace, patience, kindness, general, right? And you'll find that and it's messy and it's three steps forward and two steps back and then sometimes two steps forward and 10 steps back. And I mean, because it's not a straight line it's not a straight line, it's a heart monitor thing on steroids. But you'll find that change happens, change happens. And then the last thing that you'll discover is this hands part. All of a sudden, the 401k, the job, all the stuff that, that that used to be singularly important to you isn't as important as the mission of Jesus. And you'll find that That being on mission with Jesus and being his hands and feet in the world matter more to you than some of these other things used to matter. And again, it doesn't happen overnight and it's not instantaneous, but you'll find that those things are part of it. And so, if you've been on the fence, I just have a simple question for you. Have you encountered Jesus yet? And if the answer is, well, you know what? Yes. And I know who Jesus is and I I want, I want to make a decision to follow, then would you do that today? Make that decision. Charlotte's going to come up and talk about some things in Alaska and, and what it means to be on mission with Jesus, but just tune her out if that's you. And then when the service is done, before you leave, find me and say, Max, I want you to know I made the decision today. Okay? Would you do that? Would you do that? Here's a couple of things about the gospel that's hard to swallow. On the one hand, you're so bad that Jesus had to die to save you. But on the other hand, God is so gracious that he was willing and ready to die to save you. It's it's two things that are sometimes hard to swallow. Here's what I've discovered. I just never, my guessing ability as to who is going to turn and who is ultimately, I'm, I'm a bad guesser and I'm constantly surprised at what God does in the lives of people around me, not the least of which is my own life itself.